What is up, my friends? Welcome to Drop In with Dr. J, where we have open, authentic conversations about all things mental health, including understanding cognitive behavioral therapy and LGBTQ plus mental health. I'm so excited to have my guest on for this episode, who is a registered social worker and psychotherapist based out of Toronto, not in Toronto right now. But he teaches at multiple universities and is currently an international visiting scholar at South African College of Applied Psychology. That is so awesome. He is the host of the podcast, The CBT Dive, and is emerging writer with a focus on LGBTQ plus and minority mental health. Raheem, thank you so much for dropping in. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. J. From the internet. From the internet as we collide here in the virtual world. So we were just talking before I started recording here. You're in South Africa right now. How is it? What's it like? Um, actually, it's it's been a fascinating uh, experience. I left Toronto uh, in the height of the pandemic and all my work went virtual. So I, I was thinking about where I could take it. First, I went to Winnipeg for a year uh, where it was minus 40 degrees Celsius. And, you know, it was cute. But then I thought, why don't I go somewhere warmer? <laughs> like that could also be cute. Um, and so I've been splitting my time between Johannesburg and Cape Town. And honestly, the people have been fantastic. It's been eye-opening to really look around and get to know people and just see what the imprint and like the remnants of apartheid are, but also like how cool uh, the queer community is here, uh, the Vogue balls, the, the, the fashion, uh, the cheap cocktails. So like, it's been a, a really fulsome experience. Oh, and I was supposed to write while I was here, but I've been having fun. Uh, so you were that. absorbing all the cultural things, obviously. Writing is going to come from that inspiration, of course. A friend of mine, actually, who who lives here, uh, I met him at, like on month two. And he said, you know, it's a shame to begin writing if you haven't done some living. And so for many months, I'm like, I'm living. <laughs> and, but nowadays, when he when he he gets in touch, he's like, girl, are you writing or still living? And I'm like, oh, I can't answer this. I can't answer this. Oh, uh, yeah. But you, I love that, though, because it's it's the experiences that you gain that enrich the writing. And that's what I was wondering off the bat, like being a psychotherapist, how is being in different cultures like South Africa? How does that inform your work? Um, well, Actually, I had some unique opportunities being a visiting scholar because um, I got to facilitate workshops with folks from here uh, and at the local uh, college, um, both classes and community workshops. And it's really great to hear how people talk about like queer issues in a different context, gender issues in a different context, uh, social justice but also, you know, there's a lot of things that are similar. So people do cognitive behavioral therapy here. Mm -hmm. They do psychodynamic therapy. And if you go to the university bookstore, there's therapy books that are specifically in the South African context, which I think is fascinating, you know? And there's different kinds of language that people use to describe emotions and mental states of well-being. And 
I'm not an expert on that by any means, but it's it's interesting to learn about. So interesting and broadens the context that you can think about how therapy is applied to many, many cultures, not just to the cultures that we know best or the ones that we grew up in. I, I love it so much. Take me through. I always love hearing backstories. What what got you into the field of mental health to begin with? Oh, my word. Okay, well, I've been a therapist now for over like 10, 12 years. So I remember being in my undergraduate degree and wanting to be a teacher. And in my last year, I had a change of heart and I applied to counseling psychology. I didn't get in right away, but I I had done my undergrad in psych, a minor in poli-sci and English. And so I took a year after my undergrad and started working in the HIV sector in Toronto. And not long after that, I began my MSW. And the MSW was a two-year program. By the time I was in my second year, I jumped to another HIV AIDS organization. And I began working both as a counselor and so a counselor in a bathhouse. So for people who don't know, that's a place where guys go to have anonymous sex. And it was really cool to do, it was called towel talk. So doing a mental health intervention in a place where guys are cruising and looking for sex, super interesting. And I also was uh, working at a sexual health clinic. So from there, I just kind of built my practice and my expertise and continued to work predominantly in LGBTQ communities and with immigrants and newcomers. Well, I am fascinated by the bathhouse experience. Were were people receptive? Like, did they know you were going to be there to be counseling or talking about mental health? Or was it kind of like a surprise? Yeah. So for a lot of people, it's a surprise, but... Mm -hmm. If there, there's some people who are regulars and, you know, it's just part of their routine. Like they, you know, they'll come on this afternoon or that evening or whatever it is. And so when they get used to me being there and some of our other counselors, they, they would sometimes sync their visit with our schedule so that they could talk to somebody. But there's many other occasions where people didn't expect us. They didn't understand why we were there. And it was really interesting because at first they sexualize you, not everybody, but Mm -hmm. sometimes that's like a big part of it because they're like, what are you doing? How come you're the only guy wearing a shirt here? I'm curious about that. Or I'm curious about what it would be like if you weren't wearing a shirt. Mm -hmm. So it often started with a kind of flirting and then we would get into talking about things. And it was, you know, it was sometimes the first place where people would say, I'm really struggling with drinking or or meth use, Mm -hmm. or I'm really anxious about getting tested. Or, you know, people in my life don't know I'm gay or I'm married, that kind of thing. So it, it got intense very quickly with, with a lot of um, patrons of the, of the establishment. It's hard to call them clients because they kind of were, but it was, an, it was an anonymous service. But mostly they were, they were bathhouse patrons. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I'm so interested in that because so often, like, the mental health world, we've been sitting back in our leather chairs waiting for the people to come to us but i think about your work there in the bathhouse you're very much on the front line checking in with people on their mental health being an open compassionate person like again meeting the people where they're at and they were there at the bathhouse did that change the way you think about like what therapy or being a promoter of mental health looked like it does, yes, because, you know, the base, some basic concepts from psychodynamic therapy would be like 
creating and maintaining a therapeutic frame, right? Like how long the session is, how you look, the distance between you and the client, what the setting looks like, what the norms of the setting are. And then there's also, you know, we expect clients that we work with to have experiences in the relationship as, you know, we would call transference and counter-transference. And it's not uncommon in the therapeutic process to have a client who starts to have feelings for you or they have a sexual attraction to you. And in a, in a conventional therapeutic setting, that takes weeks and months and years. And then you talk about it and what does it mean? And, and, you know, and how do we move past it? And does it interfere with the work? All of this kind of stuff. And here, the setting lends itself to a very sexualized experience. And so we have to cut through it to, you know, to kind of figure out, are you sexualizing me as a defense? Cause you don't want to mm-hmm. talk about mental health <laughs> or mm-hmm. is it because it's unexpected that I'm here mm-hmm. and you don't know how to make sense of me. So, you know, I, I remember a couple of clients where we would begin talking about dating and then families and then migration. And you're like, it's been 35, 40 minutes. And this person came here to have sex. And suddenly they would, you know, either say they got to leave or they would whip it out and start pleasuring themselves. And I'm like, that's a very, that's like an appropriate choice for the setting, but it's Mm. an odd choice when you're in front of a therapist. And so for me, I'm like, oh, that is, it's a very clear defense. I'm like, you feel overwhelmed by the thing we're talking about and you revert it to sex in a way it's a kind of regression. Like you've gone back to a younger state or a more primal state. And I think that's fascinating. It's so fascinating because they're, they're literally showing the part of them where it's like, I, I, like you had said, I'm overwhelmed or this has become too much. And especially, I, yes. I mean, I get it in the contextual cues of the expectation they had maybe in the mind, what they were primed to do coming into the bathhouse. And now they're pulled yes. in to your compassion, this emotional connection they're forming with you. What an interesting sort of back and forth to be put in. So fascinating. You know, I remember one person who was using the bathhouse as semi-housing, you know, for a couple Mm. nights, for as long as like the limit was. And he was also uh, a heavy alcohol drinker. And he got very quick into a lot of his issues after he asked me a slew of questions about who I am and what I do and and how I I, I got this uh, credential and uh, what makes me qualified is really challenging me. Mm -hmm. And then it got intense about his family, his mom's death, all kinds of things. And about three quarters of the way through, he was like shaking. And he said, you know, I really, I need to go. I need to go have another beer. And I was like, yeah, it looks like you're in withdrawal. Like, sure, go do that. You know, like that's allowed in the establishment. And when he came back, we actually facilitated getting him into a detox center that night to, for some medical detox. And But when our session ended, it was very interesting. He offered like a sexual favor for me. Mm-hmm. And he was very attractive and, you know, it took a lot, everything I had in me to be like, no, you know, this is my job. You don't have to Mm. thank me in any other way. Mm -hmm. And I remember processing this with my clinical supervisor who was like, Raheem, this is 
the bread and butter of our work. And you got to the heart of it so quick because you modeled that there can be a mutual exchange and you model for this person who's living kind of rough, who may have to offer sex as payment or gratitude. You, you kind of showed him that that's not the only option. And so like, that's kind of, that was a powerful experience. Yeah, if that isn't, one of the best real world examples of a corrective emotional experience, providing yes. them a completely different experience. Well, yeah, where he was used to, oh, if I get anything from anyone, I must repay them in sex. So this is what I have to offer. And you were like, no, nope, yes. that's not necessary here. And yeah. wow. And you were helping him out of your compassion and kindness and not expecting, again, a sexual favor in return. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely not. And it's also interesting, you know, to think that if that is his currency in the world, like that is something he has to offer, he's good at, or people like what he has to offer, you know, it could be a way for him to manage his vulnerability to be like, I shared all this stuff. How can I regain some power? And, and, and the subtext of what I said is, no, you don't regain power. <laughs> you continue to be vulnerable. I thank you for that. I help you how I can. And then we go separate ways. And that's also like a genuine human interaction that we we as, as gay men need to get comfortable with. So, so well put. It, oh my gosh. Already the conversation through your experiences is fascinating. And I, I know you're trying to offer to people in general what demystifying therapy is what you have in sort of the subtext there on Spotify connected to the CBT dive, which so, so interesting. For people out there listening, Raheem, who have no idea what cognitive behavioral therapy is, how would you explain it? Well, it's this basic concept and idea that our thoughts behaviors and feelings are all connected, mm -hmm. right? So if you go into a situation, let's say a novel situation, or you're in a conflict with a family member or partner, you're going to feel certain things, right? And those feelings are going to lead to a series of thoughts that may be explicit, like at the surface of your mind, or more implicit, more deep down. And those thoughts all kind of operate together, and they contribute to your actions and your behavior. And so if you're not happy with what your behavior is like in a particular situation, or you wish your feelings weren't so intense, so you could respond better, right? Then we use CBT to tackle and understand the feelings, the thoughts, and the behavior. There's other entry points into that work. So for example, if you have really high anxiety or you have a phobia of some kind, we might not start with your thoughts. We might start with your behavior. We might say what behavior incites the most anxiety and what would it be like for us to work our way up to it? Or what are your assumptions about what's going to happen in this particular situation? And we create a bit of an experiment. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we work with thoughts. Sometimes we work with behavior. Sometimes we work with both. So there's multiple entry points to doing this kind of work. And so on your podcast, you're mainly using the clinical tool, the thought record, which creates yes. really interesting sort of narrative sharing on the podcast, which is so cool. What's the thought record? How is it useful? So what I like about the thought record is that it's very linear, right? Mm -hmm. And as much as it's not for everyone, mm -hmm. I've met a lot of people who you know, they might think in very circular ways, 
or they might be very repetitive when they tell a particular story. They might reiterate a dynamic they have with, you know, a partner, a lover, a roommate, whatever it is. And the thought record slows us down and gets us to think about a particular situation that brings up a difficult emotion for the person. Hmm. And I help them really narrow it down. Like, what is the situation? Is it when I enter the bar? Is it when I open Grinder? Is it when I'm about to meet somebody for a hookup? Is it while I'm having sex and receiving pleasure? Like I get very specific about the situation. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about what do you feel in that situation? What are the thoughts that come up? I ask a series of questions to help distill the thoughts so that we, we, we get, we enumerate them in a way. So, you know, we unpack it. And then we figure out which of the thoughts is most prominent and not helpful, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody might say, let's say I take this example of like, I'm in a sexual dynamic and I get really anxious when I'm receiving pleasure. And so I might say to the person, what are you thinking in that moment? And let's say their their hot thought, the most salient thought is something like, what if I lose my erection and they think I'm not interested in them? Mm. I'll follow up with another question. Okay, if you lose your erection, what will that say about you? Or what will they think about you? Well, they might not think, they might think that I'm not a good lover, or they might think that they might think they're not attractive. And so I'll follow up with, okay, and if they don't think they're attractive because of your physiological response, what will the consequence of that be? And this person might say, well, then maybe they won't want to hook up with me anymore. And if they don't want to hook up with you, what does that mean? And what does that say about you? And they might say, well, maybe it means I'm a bad lover. Boom. We really distilled it, right? It's like this upside down triangle. Mm -hmm. And I might say, okay, let's say that was the hot thought. We're going to come up with evidence for and against to evaluate the hot thought, which is I might not be a great lover. And then we come up with an alternative thought, something that's more helpful. And what I tell people is some people will say, is it kind of like an affirmation? And I say, No, because affirmations, while they can be helpful, they tend to be more generalized, whereas Mm. an alternative balanced thought is more nuanced and specific to you. And it's not saying it's an an alternative thought is never a blanket statement that you're an amazing, like you wouldn't say I'm an amazing lover. Like that's not a good alternative thought. And that's Mm -hmm. probably a lie, right? You need something balanced, like when I'm present, I can participate in sex in a way that's good. I can't always be 100%. Like that's a great alternative thought. Love and it. so when you repeat that to yourself, you might say, okay, let's look at our feelings and reevaluate them. And our hope is that by the end of the thought record, the intensity of your feelings and anxiety are reduced, right? Mm-hmm. So that you can participate and in whatever situation more fully. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of how you use a thought record. And I like to do it because it's an easy way to share my screen, you know, technically on a video <laughs> podcast and, and work through it with somebody. That was such a great example. So it really sounds like you're you're giving people more flexibility, also more compassion to be human. And a lot of the thoughts that we get caught in are very rigid yes. and judgmental. And I know a lot of times people wonder in CBT, do feelings matter at all? For you, how do feelings play into this? How does it inform the work? Oh, a huge component of it for me is awareness of feelings, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I might say if your anxiety is at a 10, uh, I might say, okay, I'm going to name a few more emotions and you tell me if those fit for you. Sadness, Mm -hmm. humiliation, Mm -hmm. 
abandonment, rejection, curiosity, excitement. I list like challenging emotions, neutral ones, like, you know, positive ones. And I want people to have more emotional awareness, right? Because then at the end, I'll say what stood out to you. And some people will say, oh, I didn't know I was feeling so many things. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that's quite helpful. You know, I might say, if we can reduce the anxiety or the anticipatory rejection, suddenly your excitement score goes up and your curiosity score goes up and your confidence score goes up, right? Those things don't get to shine when they're muddled with the other emotions. Absolutely. So I think there is an emotion awareness piece, a thread that, that, that uh, operates throughout. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I, I always like to say that all therapists are cognitive in nature and all therapists <laughs> think emotions are important. But a lot of the work is kind of where do you focus? What are you going into the body trying to find where that emotion lives? Or are you using it, as you described, sort of as a descriptor and a flag that's being raised of like, oh, if we notice sadness, then we can sort of transition to what might we be telling ourselves in any given moment or saying about ourselves? Mm -hmm. What does this mean about ourselves? Getting to sort of those core beliefs there. Yeah. Yes. you know, I wanted to get your take on this because CBT is often criticized of not emphasizing the role of multiculturalism, race, identity enough. What do you think about that criticism? Is it fair? Is it not fair? I think every single modality can be done badly. Absolutely. I think, you know, being a purist with just one modality is usually not helpful for most clinicians, unless, unless, unless you're in a very specified, like, oh, sorry, specialized clinic where people are screened to come to you to, to use just a couple of specific intervention tools, right? So if you're not in a specialized clinic, you, you likely want to be drawing on a few different things, mm-hmm. right? So I really like psychodynamic therapy, conceptualizing. I also really like gestalt role play and, you know, body work. And I like CPT. And I I think that the interventions that these modalities provide cannot be replaced with, like, they don't take the place of, they're in addition to our cultural and social justice lens, uh, you know, our values of being client-centered and strengths-based. You know, I talk to my client, we talk about issues of like, oppression and rape culture and masculinity. And I do a thorough assessment and and we talk about substances in a way that's not shaming. So there's so many different pieces that, that occur in a therapeutic space. But of course, you know, you could do CBT badly. You could do psychodynamic therapy terribly. You could do solution focused therapy. Like you could, you could do anything badly. I don't know how Mm -hmm. else to say that really, but that's why there's a skill. And that's why we have you know, we have the multiple degrees and then ongoing training and then clinical supervision. We're constantly working on the skills to meet our clients where they're at. Like, that's not an easy thing to do. I love the way you put that because often people on TikTok or Instagram will be like, I tried CBT and I hated it. And my response yeah. always to that is that unfortunately says way more about the practitioner you were connected with than it does about the modality. It's not to say, and I know you're saying this as well. It's not to say. No, it is to say 100%. (laughs) And here's the thing. I've supervised a number of graduate students and 
they all came in with the critique of CBT and not liking it. And that's, that's when I doubled down mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, we're going to do a couple full days of training on CBT in our clinic. And I'm going to start this podcast because I was like, you don't have to love it. You just have to really know how to do it. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. That, that hit me right in the supervision heart. <laughs> I love that. Because it's true, I, you know, a lot of stereotypes get passed along, but in any of these modalities, it really is about the art of how you do it. And this yes. idea that we're not seeing the client through their cultural lens, through their different identities. You mm. you can do better, like you said, you can not walk beside them and compassionately get curious about them in any modality. You can do mm-hmm. bad therapy. Yeah, it, it, like you can misuse attachment theory. Of course. Uh, if you're looking at psychodynamic stuff, you know, and you think about countertransference and how the client might make you feel, you could get into like victim, like you could get into victim blaming. Mm-hmm. Like you could do a lot of bad things. You have to work very hard not to. <laughs> That's part of the skill and it's part of the work. Absolutely. And I, you practice what you preach. You go to different cultures, learn about different people's ways of being and expand your horizon, which I feel like is always the work of therapists. A lot of people mm-hmm. think like, oh, you're probably just always learning new techniques. And it's like techniques are probably the thing, not that they're not important. As you said, you have to learn to polish that and really understand that tool. But if you don't constantly broaden your horizon and talk to people who have a different perspective, different point of view, and try to yes. understand their world and daily life view, you're not going to be an effective therapist. Absolutely. And, you know, so I was just having a conversation with somebody from the college where I'm a visiting scholar. It was a dean actually yesterday. She was telling me about this research she's been she's been doing on attachment in a culture here where it's so common for people to have uh, like a, a live-in domestic helper. Mm-hmm. And so she was talking about research on children who call multiple people mama, you know, because you'll have a domestic helper that is mama, and then you have your biological mom that's mama. And, you know, the the family models are also different in places where there's been so much loss as a result of HIV and AIDS, where, you know, some, some young children will be taken care of by an aunt or a grandmother. And, attachment just looks very different or or there's different nuances to it, you know? And you you have to think about that, that cultural context and what it means to have multiple caregivers as opposed to thinking about a deficiency and a lack of something. Like there's different ways to approach it from a cultural context. Absolutely. And it it informs everything of the way we think about symptomology, the way we think about certain diagnoses, but the the way we think about, are they thriving and living quote unquote, their best life within Mm. their cultural context? Cause we can be from a different cultural context and be very much like, Oh, this, this looks like it's complicated or it's a problem where in their world, there's like, it's no problem. Like they're, they're thriving. Yes. You know, to that end, queer culture, you know, and, and for gay men's culture in particular, you know, the way I assess or the way I see people self-assess and evaluate their own relationship to substances is very different for gay men relative mm-hmm. to straight counterparts that I see in therapy. As gay men, we have a culture of 
like we do more. There's more of everything, <laughs> you know? Um, so somebody who regularly does MDMA and GHB, they'll probably be like, those are drugs that I do. And if I'm like, what about alcohol and, and poppers? And they'll be like, oh, but those aren't really, you know, they, they don't even consider those drugs. So the way they evaluate things are quite different, you know? And that that's its own subculture within uh, North American uh, queer communities, but also, the, honest to God, the world over. <laughs> the queer people party harder and we have our own issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're naming like what becomes norms with it of use, substance use, even food and drink, like all these can be norms within subcultures. But again, as therapists, when you're not a part of a certain subculture, you can be like, wow, because you're uninformed, because you feel like it's foreign to you, you may may mistakenly think, oh, that is this a problem? Where in reality, yeah. no, they are thriving within their subculture. And, you know, I once, so I, I had an appointment with a, a psychoanalyst who I only saw for one session. Oh. And the reason I didn't go back, <laughs> I had a subsequent analyst and he was amazing. But this first mm-hmm. one, the reason I didn't go back was in my first session, I talked about body image issues mm-hmm. and I was in my like early mid twenties and I was talking about partying and, and, you know, going to circuit parties And she said, tell me about how your eating disorder and addiction are related. And I took such a step back because I thought, I don't, those labels really, I, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, this is years later. I don't think I'm being overly sensitive or defensive, but I really don't think either of those labels applied. I would say that there was a problem relationship with substances potentially, Mm -hmm. but I also think substances were giving me a way to participate in a community that I had difficulty mm-hmm. connecting with. Mm-hmm. I think there was a lot more there. And just that that label and the way she interpreted it, you know, it didn't make me feel good. I just, I could not go back. Uh, right, because head. <laughs> it's layered with judgment and it, it's directly pointing that not looking at the utility of your behaviors, but saying these are obviously a problem. When in mm-hmm. fact, like we know, like, a lot of behaviors have a lot of pro-social benefit. And with any yes. behavior, you can look at what's it doing for us in a positive way, how might it hold us back in certain circumstances, but to hit you with the double diagnosis. Oh, yeah, off of a one Ooh. session. <laughs> a I quick, just did not go back. Yeah. <laughs> goodbye. See you later. See you never. <laughs> I probably had a bottle of wine that night, but <laughs> that's her fault, honestly. Yeah. Hey, I don't blame you one bit, one bit. So I know you had said you're emerging writer, have a big interest in the LGBTQ and minority health, mental health space. Where are we? Like how, where do you think we are and what are the growth areas you'd like to see in improving minority LGBTQ mental health and health? Mm. Well, I think we've come to a place where there's lots of research, there's lots of governmental, well, not the whole government, but like arms of the government, you know, the people who do like mental health and hygiene or, or health ministries, there is, I, I think there's been a big effort in, in at least the North American context for to increase mental health literacy. And people are talking about mental health issues within subcultures and racialized communities. I see conferences on indigenous mental health, South Asian mental health, black men's mental health in New York. There's in my mind, people of color mental health conference. So I think there's more research, more stats, more awareness. And 
I think one of the limitations is that, or one of the places where we're at is simply identifying, you know, that communities are disproportionately affected or Mm -hmm. that there is silence around certain issues and communities. I don't know that we're, where I want us to be, where I want us to be as a culture is thinking about mental health, not just as like prevalence rates of depression and suicide, but cultivating wellness across the lifespan, Mm -hmm. you know? So like not I'm gay 25 and depressed, but more like my child is, you know, in grade four, perhaps gender nonconforming. How can I support him now? Mm -hmm. What's happening in the curricular materials that talks about sexual health for all people? How, How is this young person being represented in curricular materials? Like those are all huge systemic things that could mitigate that person's depression at age 25, right? And I think that's where we really need to be and really need to be going. In my practice, I also, I try not to just think about like treating anxiety, treating depression, treating body image, but I really think we need to be more exploratory, you know, like Mm -hmm. tell me about the context situations that activate your depression. What memories are tied to that? When did that begin for you? How is your depression adaptive? There's a kind of shutting down that your body does. How do you think that protects you? And when did that begin? Like in response to what? So I think being more exploratory and curious about the way our mind functions is really is really nice. But I don't think we're all there yet. I think a lot of people are like, I have a acute problem and I want to come to therapy. And then sometimes they're disappointed because it's not, it's not so simple. It's not antibiotics for an acute infection. It's, it's, you know, it's a culmination of a a lifetime of things to unpack. Absolutely. Yeah. You're getting to how nuanced this all is. There there is no magic pill and sure. It's great to have stats and data, you know, anxiety within any given community, but does that really say we understand how an individual thrives, how they interact socially, how they form their community or tribe, as it were, like all yes. that, all that is, I, I'm with you 100% of like, we're not there. We don't have that information. And yeah. Yeah, no, sorry. I was just going to say, I think that we also, different communities have different determinants Absolutely. of mental health outcomes. That's right. Right. Like if you grow up in like, if you're an African-American in Texas, mm-hmm. you know, the determinants of your mental health are going to look different than if you are, you know, like a white person in Los Angeles in an upper middle class neighborhood. Like the things that make you feel good or lead to good outcomes or build your self-esteem, they're, they're, the context is quite different. Like in terms of religiosity, spirituality, extended family, internalized messages from the larger culture. Uh, anti-Black racism, systemic barriers in terms of networks. Like there's so many structural things that are part of the determinants of your mental health outcomes. And I think gay men also, you know, like even though we've come so far, I think like the experience of coming out, experiences of like boundary and body violations or, you know, poor experiences around consent. Like those are huge determinants of our mental health and they're kind of unique in our cultural context. Absolutely. I I love what you named there because so often when I'm on TikTok or Instagram or doing a live, I'll get people want help. And I love that they want help and they're curious about it, but they'll be like, you know, what can I do to help me with my anxiety? 
And I feel like a lot of the textbook things that are out there, again, mm -hmm. the cultural context that they're pulled from is often in people of privilege. And we've come mm -hmm. a long way in that. We got a lot more research on that. But what you're naming, I feel like is the heart of the truth is what is going to work to improve your anxiety in all the cultural context, identity context yes. that, that represent who you are. That is the specificity, which for me leads to, we need to think about how we widen access for groups, for psychotherapy in general, because yes. for me to just say these general things, right, that do this for your anxiety, work on sleep, meditate, you know, all these things that sure, they, they can help sort of globally. But that isn't going to be nearly as helpful as you mm -hmm. learning about you within all these great contexts, subgroups totally. that you're a part of. And I think that's the huge difference between like mental health hygiene mm. and like therapeutic work, right? There, there, there's like things you can do to support and cultivate overall well-being, but we're all such complex beings. One of the things I really love from my Gestalt training was to be able to talk to either your body parts, people in your life, or your anxiety or depression or your substance of choice. And you put them in the quote unquote empty chair, uh, which isn't really empty because you, you talk to the empty chair. <laughs> you um, fill it up. Yeah. <laughs> you fill it up. And I find, you know, even if I don't know somebody's like big history and uh, oh, an empty chair role play is a great way to get people deeper into their own story. So maybe, maybe we'll bring somebody on a live and, and do it with them. I don't know if that's ethical, but we'll find out and maybe we could do that. Oh, and these are the things where I feel like not ethics be damned, but it's like, dang, ethics yeah. back in so many ways of us being able to show very specific, great techniques. And again, I love the language that you have on tied to your podcast, a demystifying therapy, because still for a lot of people, they don't really know what gestalt therapy what cbt actually looks like and that yeah. is what's so great about your podcast is you are modeling that for people and they're mm -hmm. getting ideas of how they would apply this to their life or simply what it would look like if they met with a cbd therapist next week yes 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 and just so people know i do get their consent in advance and we talk course, before before we do the thought record to make sure it's a good fit. And then I let them know where they can get other supports if they need it, just so people know. <laughs> I love that. As a good therapist would, a little CYA, cover your ass if you don't know what that means in our field, but we have to. This is just yes. part of the whole thing. This conversation, literally fascinating. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. I wanna get to these Instagram questions. Shout out to everybody out there who always blows up the story and drops great questions. Uh, a lot of good ones here for Rahim. I'm going to read an ad and then we'll get to those questions. So all podcasts have great sponsors. We're lucky enough to be sponsored by the mental health app Dive Through. So college can be a big adjustment and stressful time for many. I've created this awesome course on the Dive Through app for navigating stress and burnout while you're in college. In this course, I'll be teaching you coping strategies for keeping stress manageable, avoiding unnecessary stressors, and avoiding burnout, recovering from it while you're in school, getting that degree. Hey, download that Dive Through app. A lot of great courses on there, a lot of great material. Check it out. Google Play the good old Apple store.
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we all have mental health, but many of us resist getting help because it's inconvenient or we simply don't know where to start. BetterHelp has made the process of getting with a mental health professional easy. In fact, you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That's lightning fast. The service is available for clients worldwide. Wherever you are out there, BetterHelp is there for you. You can also log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. This is an awesome feature because we all know things happen between sessions. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in uncomfortable waiting room as you have to with traditional in-person therapy. There is absolutely something to sitting on your own couch, your own chair or furniture in your space and starting your therapeutic journey. Incredibly convenient and comforting. Visit betterhelp.com backslash drop in Dr. J. That's better H-E-L-P backslash drop in D-R-J, all lowercase. Drop-in listeners will receive a special promo code for 10% off your first month. Start living a healthier life today. So many great questions here. Again, shout out to you all for dropping these questions in. Uh, I love it when people share a little bit about themselves and get a little vulnerable here. Here's here's a really cool one. I'm a teen girl who's LGBTQ, uh, who has a history of self-harm and suicidal thoughts, and I'm about to start CBT. Is this a good fit for me? What should I expect? Mm. So at first I would say, yes, I I think it could be quite helpful. It might not be all you need, but I can imagine that your therapist will work with you to identify trigger situations, meaning situations that make you feel particularly activated and you get this urge to self-harm. And they might talk to you about what's going on in your mind at that time, what situations, context, people, places heighten your anxiety or, or your despair. And then you can work from there. And that'll help you create a lot of insight about what drives some of the behavior. Uh, Some people might suggest that you also look into DBT, but there's no rush to do it all at once, you know, and the DBT perspective can help us with radical acceptance and mindfulness. So those are extra pieces that are that, that are good for grounding, and they help help us manage urges when we might do something that we don't actually want to be doing. Having said that, I think that you're going, the fact that you're going to therapy is really, really great. And I would say that if some of the self-harm continues, even while you're in therapy, try not to judge yourself for it, because that is a tool that you have established somewhere along the way. And it, you can't just toss something out of your toolbox. It'll be there for a while. You know, so the idea is to reduce the intensity of emotions and add things to your toolbox along the way. And it might even be, you know, for some people, uh, when their goals setting to be realistic for the first little while, it might be that they want to cut or self-harm less frequently, mm-hmm. uh, less severely, or maybe the focus from a harm reduction perspective is on much better wound care and doing something afterward that is actually addresses the difficult feelings uh, so that you know there's something from your old pattern plus something new 
right? So give yourself some leeway as you as you work through this journey, because it's not all just behavior change. Mm. There's also insight and there's also learning as you go along. I, I love everything you just said, it's especially the non-judgment part of it, because as we know, when you're working with clients, when you can set the judgment aside, it opens up curiosity, which again, as we've talked about, really highlights like, what is this behavior doing for us? Where do, what are some of the roots of this behavior? That curiosity is, is everything for us creating behavioral change. I love it. Here's another one for you. How should I address confusion regarding my sexuality? What type of therapist would be good for me? Mm. You know, so I, I, I think somebody who's exclusively CBT might not be great, to be mm-hmm. honest, because they might have, like, I think a CBT person would talk about situations that cause distress. So for people who are questioning their gender or sexuality, usually gendered spaces, gender segregated spaces, things that are, you know, ascribed to specific genders like sports or, or, or school dances or, you know, things like that can bring up a lot of despair. And then you could analyze those in general. I think a therapist that can listen and help you make sense of what the feelings are. Usually what we need is someone to let us know that what we're feeling is okay. And that there is in fact time to sort through things in moments when they feel very urgent right and that's what uh, that could be a big function of a therapist it could be to help you manage the urgency of resolving you know this dilemma or, or some of the confusion part of it will also be on you to slowly look at things that feel affirming or that satisfy your curiosity so books films you know school clubs things that are curious like that spark your curiosity, but also incite a sense of belonging. You know, I would follow the breadcrumbs to whatever makes you feel like you belong. Oh, such a great, that tagline at the end really hit home. And I I love the experimentation there that we can find spaces that align with us, find art, find books, find movies. It's not always specifically in therapy um, that Mm -hmm. most of our self-discovery comes out. This question I really like a lot. Is there one thing, if there's one thing you could say to transphobic parents, what would you say? Hmm. The one thing is a little say, tough because I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure it's. Uh, there's a lot of things. Yeah. I would say the world is bigger than you think. And it's important for you to contain your grief because it can be damaging. Mm. Love that. Love that. And now I'm going to ask you to expand upon that a little bit in the containing the grief. In what ways would you see that be damaging? Like what, what are people doing out there or saying or acting that you're like, that's something that could damage, you know, your child, your kid. Yes. Well, if we take another kind of example where grief shows up, you know, let's say you have a family member who moved away and you feel very sad about that. It's important for you to still be supportive about why that family member moved away. Uh, And every time you talk to that family member, you make them feel guilty for doing something that was good for them. Mm -hmm. Then your grief is getting in the way of 
their progress and in the way of your relationship. In a similar way, when somebody is transitioning or has discovered something really important about themselves, or maybe is far from discovering, but feels like they really want to let someone else in to their world and share something important about them, it's, it's okay for a parent to grieve. They have to grieve the image they had of the child, what they thought the future was going to be. You know, this person is a different person than they thought they were. So that grief is okay. But if you make that grief your child's responsibility, if you make it your child's responsibility to soothe your grief, then that gets in the way of the relationship building, your ability to support them, and it can alienate them, right? And they're going to read it as rejection or disapproval. And that's not helpful. That's pretty selfish. Absolutely. So well said. So well said. And often for me, I work a lot with teens. The challenge I give to parents is you have to expand your community. Because what we know based on the research, once you form a close relationship with somebody who identifies as trans, gay, bi, non-binary, for the vast majority of people, it opens your world and crushes a lot of stereotypes, biases that you hold because you formed a relationship with an individual that wasn't in your community, that wasn't in your circle. And overwhelmingly, (laughs) my parents, they're just like, I don't know anyone who's trans. Well, you have your child and you're pushing them away because of the biases that you hold. It's time for you to expand your circle and it Mm -hmm. again, explore Mm -hmm. those new experiences. Yeah. Absolutely. Here's another one, sort of related, sort of not, but any tips on telling your family you've been in a committed queer relationship for a while? Well, first of all, that's a lovely thing. So I'm happy for you. It's a lovely thing to be able to experience. I think we all have a little bit of internalized homophobia and transphobia. And I really think relationships are these beautiful structures where we can work through some of that and be with somebody in a very like significant way. Now, telling parents is a nice thing. Uh, I, I think a question I would ask you to consider is, what are your objectives of telling them? Mm. What are you hoping is going to happen? What might be the best possible outcome? And what might be a less desirable outcome that's also possible? And then move forward there. I think having realistic expectations is really important. I will say for a lot of queer people, you know, when we come out, we, we, a lot of us aren't in relationships at that time. And for a lot of people, they'll say their family kind of forgot that they were queer or they forgot, uh, you know, to bring this up again. And when you're in a relationship, it's not just talking about your identity. It's talking about like a life circumstance. It's talking about like a life event, right? It makes it more real for them. And so in that way, it can be a hugely significant moment for you. I think you just have to to tread kind of carefully, right? Like, what is the expectation? Mm. If you have any straight or cis siblings, you might consider what was it like when they introduced a partner to the family and ask yourself, like, do you think you're going to get the same reception? Is it going to be a bit of an uphill battle? Is there, and how invested are are you in working with your parents to to be uh, as accepting as you'd like? And maybe they'll be great right off the bat. I just don't know the specifics of your situation. But, th- but there are certainly some things to consider. 
Uh, absolutely. Especially the reflections that you laid out there, Rahim. It, it allows people to set a realistic expectation because all of us want to be embraced no matter what we got going on in our life. But often when we start thinking about our parents or friends or individuals, when you start collecting the data of your experiences, it starts to set a reasonable bar of, of where it might be. This is a cool question. We love it when mental health professionals reach out, ask questions, but they said, as a therapist, I'm curious, what are the important things to be mindful of or look out for when you're working with any queer client? Ooh, that's, I love that question, actually. I think what we have to recognize is that we have a lot of knowledge on a systems level or on a you know community level about issues our community faces, challenges people might have, the dynamics around, you know, our sex and dating culture, et cetera. But it's really important for us to keep that in the back of our mind and really listen to the client in their own circumstances. The knowledge we have on a community and systems level helps inform how we understand what they're saying. It helps us offer interpretations and suggestions, but we really have to listen to them because the queer community is not at all one uniform thing right? Trans people have very different experiences. Trans people of color have very different experiences. Gay men of different economic backgrounds are going to have different experiences. So we, we really have to think about how are people negotiating their identities? What feels good for them? You know, I've met a lot of queer Muslim people uh, in my community who have, who are selectively out or have decided not to come out to some people in their family. And it's really important that, you know, I don't jump and think, oh, that must be like internalized homophobia or, or internalized shame that you're not coming out because like there's multiple ways to be queer and multiple ways to be in the world. So we really have to think about that, you know, and think about how, what are people's sources of resilience? How are they surviving? And be cautious about where we want to challenge them, right? We want to push them in a direction that they've identified as a larger goal, not in a direction that matches our exact trajectory. All I hear coming out of that is to stay curious, watch our assumptions. Yeah, It's so nuanced. And often uh, clients will ask or followers ask a question of like, should I get a therapist that's just like me? And what I always try to communicate to them of like, you may have some identity overlap, cultural overlap, even symptomology that you've struggled with throughout your life. But there, the nuance of you is still going to reign supreme. Like mm -hmm. there is nobody who's had quite the experiences like you, whether it's in the yeah. queer community or just like in life. So I, I think it's unrealistic. And as therapists, I, I'm totally with that. You can get caught up when you have overlapping identities in sort of assuming mm. things. Yes, again, there might be things you don't see, right? Absolutely. I mean, although I did have a friend last week and I, I, I recommended a therapist to him and he's like, is she straight though? And I'm like, yeah, but like, she's pretty good. And he said, no, I don't want to explain what poppers are to anybody. <laughs> and I was like, why? That could, it'll literally take you a minute to explain what poppers are. He's like, no, 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 I don't want to. And I was like, you know what? Fair. <laughs> we also live in a consumer culture and you're like, I'm paying for a service and I want it to look this way. Great. Um, I think the challenge or the, the thinking, the hard part is on the, is, is on the therapist's end. When you work in a community you belong to, there's unique things you have to think about in process and supervision, less so the client. Uh, absolutely. So I ongoing supervision in therapy. I, I don't know how you can be in this field and not 
be a part of supervision groups or get your own therapy. There's, there's so much yes. that comes out. There's so much involvement mm-hmm. of the self in being a therapist, which is exciting and interesting. And when I try to recruit people into our field, I'm like, you're very involved. It, it can be draining, yeah. be very draining, but it's always like, it's never boring. This work has never been boring. So no, it's tiring, <laughs> but not boring. Exactly. Exactly. Raheem, this, the conversation has been so, so great. Last question for you. It's probably the most important. Where can people follow you? Oh, I do like that question. <laughs> well, I came up with a fun nickname for myself or an alias. It's Lady Adivan. <laughs> so Lady and then A-T-I-V-A-N. And so if you go to ladyadivan.com, you can get to all of my social handles there. It's just easy, one click. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, blah, blah, blah. Ladyadivan.com. And yeah, I'll see you on the internet. <laughs> Raheem Thauer, thank you so much. I love that you shared your experience, your insights. I know you helped a lot of people by dropping in. Definitely give a follow, Instagram, listen to the podcast. It is one of the best examples of really applying CBT and different techniques, again, in what feels a real and helpful way. If you're not dropping in and spying on people's therapy sessions, this is the next best thing. So- (laughs) Thank you again. Enjoy South Africa and come back on the show sometime. I will. You know what? Maybe I'll see you in Florida. I'll bring my relationship communication workshop there and we will have a ball. I would love nothing more. Let's do it. Let's set a date. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. As always, like, share, review, comment, do all the things, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>